0: You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. At the heart of open banking Lies an important and difficult question Do you own your data? This question follows the internet around like a shadow From its early days connecting school computer labs in the 80s All the way through to the Cambrian explosion of data we are witnessing today Questions around ownership and control of data Have always been somewhat of a dark cloud in the blue skies of global connectivity. Open banking brings the question of data ownership to the forefront in a very real way. By proposing a standardized method to securely share your financial data, it raises an obvious question. Is that financial data even yours to begin with? Or does it belong to the banks? Suddenly, We aren't talking about cat pictures anymore. Open banking shines a light on a type of data and a type of access that forces us to think twice about what we are comfortable with sharing and what we are not. Perhaps the very notion of data ownership is a fallacy and claiming control over your data is impossible. On the other hand, perhaps having control of your data is nothing less than a fundamental human right. And regaining that control is the only way the internet can continue to evolve. In this episode, we visit Australia, where open banking has led to broad discussions around data ownership, data control, and data rights. Not just in the financial sector, but throughout the entire economy. To be sure, the Australians have faced challenges like common views of customers across industries or clear, consistent consent flows. But they have largely come out ahead, at least for now. As these data rights inevitably come knocking on the door of the Googles and Facebooks of the world, what happens next is anyone's guess. So sit back and enjoy this extra long episode, exploring data rights. A fitting conclusion to our very first season of Mr. Open Banking. Our guest on the show today is James Bly. James is a legend in the open banking space, a veteran of API implementation. James started his career as a digital architect at the National Australian Bank, where he built their app and streamlined their online channels. In 2018, James made the jump to the data standards body, it was there that James led the development of the Consumer Data Right, or CDR, a legislation that is largely regarded as one of the most progressive open banking standards in the world. Today, James is the co-founder of Red Crew, an elite engineering firm for large organizations that are looking to transform their technology assets. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today, James. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Ile. It's a pleasure to be here. When you look at open banking in Australia, the very first thing you notice is that the open banking regulation does not contain the words open banking. It's called the consumer data right, or CDR. Can you tell us about the consumer data right? I absolutely can. The key characteristic of the regulatory reforms
1: happening in Australia is the fact that although we're starting with banking and it has the form of open banking. And for people like me that have been in banking and tried to promote APIs, open data in the banking sector for a long time, this is really wonderful. It's not just about banking. The Australian federal government, based on the Farrell review, took the bold step of creating a cross-economy regime. So the consumer data right is really about the consumer. One of the issues with open banking is that it's about banking and usually done by bankers or people in the banking sector. A lot of consumers aren't interested in banking. A lot of consumers are interested in spending or earning or paying for their house. They're not specifically focused on banking. So the consumer data right is really about consumers having control of their data. So for that reason, it's not just about banking. And already we're moving into a cross-sector model.
0: So the focus of CDR is on the consumer rather than on banking per se. How does that fundamentally change the way consumers interact with their financial services relative to other open banking standards?
1: Well, fundamentally, open banking and the CDR is about the exchange of data through APIs normally. And so from that perspective, a transaction is a transaction, whichever regime you're in, to a degree, it's not different for the consumer. However, the key difference I would say as this evolves is likely to be the customer's interaction with consent. As we move across economy, we're not going to have a situation where this is the way banking works and this is the way another sector works it's going to be a consistent consent experience if the entire australian population was able to get used to well this is how i consent to people sharing my data and i have very strong control over that i can stop it at any time i can ask the person that i've given the data to to delete or de-identify my data and they have to do it i know that they're accredited so there's a certain level of base trust that I have in the people that I'm sharing with, otherwise they can't get the data. They see the consistency and the trust as they go across sector. It means that they'll get used to sharing financial data because people are very engaged digitally with their financial data and that will transfer into other sectors. And the consistency will mean people will get used to doing it a particular pattern and they'll notice if it's not according to that pattern. Commonality and consistency is a way of training a group of customers, users, to be good with their information security and avoid social engineering pitfalls. I think the key area will be
0: how the consent is presented. So at the heart of the CDR is this notion of consent. And because you're cross-economy, the idea is that folks are going to want consent to be consistent across industries. Can you get specific about the kinds of things a consumer can consent to?
1: The purpose of consent in the consumer data right is very much focused on consumer control. So what the consumer can do at any particular point in the consumer data right is actually less going to be driven by regulation and rules, it's actually more likely to be driven by consumer experience. At the moment, the standards allow someone to share their transaction data. If we continue to test the users of the consumer data right and find that they actually want to be able to only share the last six months or they want to be able to control how far back that goes we can add that we are not trying to get ahead of that because too many options actually confuses people and actually takes away their control however by being able to pivot where the consumers want control means that we can adapt that consent to the things they need to control the key thing though is that it's not a terms and conditions checkbox. It's not a accept or go away. It's a, you are in control. And if you want to not and if someone's asking you to share six things, but you only want to share four, you can do that. Uh, And if you want to stop sharing, you can
0: do that. And the standard can be extended to cover effectively any kind of data? I was instrumental in developing the standards.
1: I would be the first to say that the Australian Consumer Data Rights Standards stand on the shoulders of giants. But essentially, because we're using an API model, anything that can be expressed in structured data form, we can share. The real limitation of what we can share isn't what we can bring into the regime. It's more actually what we should bring into the regime. I'm not a fan of over-regulation personally. The regime itself is not trying to control everybody's data. It's trying to encourage data sharing in a consistent
0: way where it's not occurring naturally.
1: And also, it's creating trust
0: in the system. Most open banking standards cover accounts, transactions, payments, and a product book. Are there any elements that CDR has added beyond what you'd see in other standards?
1: Essentially, no, it's pretty much a standard open banking suite of data from that perspective. The one thing I would call out though, is the customer payload. Most open banking regimes are just that, banking. So they focus on banking data. Because this is consumer oriented, we have a customer payload, which is not a banking customer, it's a generic customer. Now that has minimal impact just in banking, but you can imagine as we go across many sectors, a common way of describing a customer so I can become a new customer in a new sector by using my data from an old sector could
0: be quite powerful. So you've created a kind of meta structure where you can now carry payloads about customers, i.e. me, if that payload is about me, and a mechanism to carry a generalized list of consents, the data that I've agreed to share with others. So how does that change the kinds of services that you can offer if I can share data across industries, across economy?
1: I guess that's the exciting thing about the consumer data ride is that I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I have no idea because no one's ever done it. When the first people set out to create TCPIP, how many of them thought this was going to change the way humans would communicate globally? Nobody would have been able to picture Facebook or Twitter. uh, The pandemic, um, Zoom, Webex, Teams, these are services that were science fiction when people were creating the, the
0: internet protocol. A recap. In Australia, the open banking legislation is called The consumer data right or cdr and it's not focused on banking at all the cdr is really about the customer and the data they may want to share across any industry following the recommendations of the ferrell report australian regulators took the bold step of directly addressing the issue of reciprocity that often comes up in other regions namely if you want access to bank data well and you have to share your data in return, no matter what industry you're in. What makes this possible is something unique to CDR, a common representation of a customer, a description of a person that is carried around as part of the banking data or telecom data or healthcare data that is being shared. A lot of effort was put towards making the experience of consenting to share your data as clear and consistent as possible, building trust and driving adoption. In practice, the CDR lets you control who gets to see what data about you, for how long, and for what purpose. And it can do this for all types of data, putting control firmly back in the hands of consumers themselves. As James says, the truly exciting thing here is that no one has ever really tried this before. So no one can really say with certainty what the results will be. In the spirit of the early internet, the CDR is the work of pioneers. That's where James and I pick things up. Where are you on this journey? We're well progressed on the journey.
1: The standards themselves have been designed for banking, but probably at least 80% of that work was foundational work, which I would consider cross-economy. And in fact, the standards are done, the rules are done, and this is a non-trivial aspect. You know, actually trying to create the regulatory rules and get the balance between principle and specificity right is hard. The ACCC in Australia, the lead regulator or the lead co-regulator with the Information Commissioner's Office is excellent. And they've done a really great job defining those rules through some hard problems such as how do you handle joint accounts and how do you not accidentally share a third party's privacy and how do you make sure that the accredited recipient is accredited and safe and things like that. And the experience we now got in electricity is the process of electricity is going a lot faster than it was for banking, which is good news because if we're going to be cross-economy and we're potentially going to be doing 15 sectors, we can't do two years per sector. That's 30 years, and by that stage, we'll be, in Australian terminology, painting the Harbour Bridge again. We'll be starting back at the beginning.
0: How have the banks in Australia reacted to the far-reaching implications of the CDR?
1: Well, the far-reaching aspects, as in the cross-economy aspects, I think have been less relevant to the banks than the fact that they were the first sector. So their reaction is based on, we've got to do this. But the banks have reacted individually, I would say. Each of the banks, and we've got four major banks and about 100 plus smaller deposit taking institutions in Australia. Just across the four banks, and I won't name names, we've got the gamut from embracing this and pragmatically helping drive it forward to passive aggressive resistance. This is changing their business model and it is changing the way they interact. That is a challenge for them. It creates risk. To their business which is understood what about the fintech community obviously the fintechs want this to occur however there is a flip side to that which is the fintech community in australia is very rich and well-established and very mature and innovative so fintechs in australia it's a well-established sector but it's based on screen scraping so it has a ceiling of adoption because there's only a certain number of people that will give their banking password to someone else Personally, I like to think of that sector of society as the insane part of the society, but that's different people have different perceptions on that. But if you're building your business on screen scraping, it gives you incredible flexibility. You are not limited. You, You know, once you get that username and password, you can see anything in internet banking. And at the internet banking websites in Australia, because our banking sector has been actually quite digitally innovative, there's a lot of data there. So for the fintech sector to move into CDR, which is a regulated, well-structured data set that is designated from the top down and is being thrashed out,
0: they're not getting as much through that. Because for them, it's a bit of a step back. That's correct.
1: You know, there is naturally hesitance about saying, am I going to bank my company, my life's work on this new thing? Because if the government loses faith in it, you know, there's plenty of policies that fall by the wayside and don't reach their promise, just like there's plenty of startups that fall by the wayside and don't reach their promise. You know, this is what happens in this new space. So one of the difficulties I've had developing standards is I've had a very, very loud banking community and a very, very quiet fintech community. So in certain topics in standards development requires both parties to be equally strong. The fintech community, I would say, have held back, but are now starting to embrace this and saying, what can we do with it?
0: The third party that seems critical in all this, other than the banks or the other sectors and the fintechs, is, of course, the consumers, the consumers named in the consumer data right. Have regular people embraced this idea?
1: Consumers have had limited opportunity to really see the consumer data right yet. The 1st of July was when we went live with actual authenticated consumer sharing of data and really, there were only two recipients that went live. However, I think that one is going to be a wait and see. So come back and interview me in six months and I'll give you an
0: update. Let me dig in on that a little bit. Have you found people are embracing the ideological side, the idea of having consumer data rights?
1: So from that perspective, the answer is that
0: consumers are
1: very much interested in having rights over their data. In Australia, there's an active dialogue in many areas around it's my data, I should control it, which is a negative way of looking at this, but it's natural because it's we're at the robber baron Rockefeller stage of this new industry. So recently, there were announcements from the ACCC uh, about Google changing its data sharing policy with DoubleClick and Facebook, there's a court case, I believe, a class action around uh, Facebook with limiting advertisements on their platform for cryptocurrency just before they'd released Libra. People are taking data which is a valuable asset from other people and giving them very little in return for it compared to the value that it is worth. Generally, people did not understand the value of data. They're starting to really understand the value of data because they see the share prices of these organizations that are data oriented. And you're seeing now the regulator and the courts starting to go after poor behavior in the data space. I think the environment is ready for this and desiring of this. And I think there's definitely a frustration with the single checkbox terms and conditions model uh, that gives all of the power to the service and none of the power to
0: the consumer. Despite the challenges, the Australians' forward-thinking approach to open banking is well on its way. The standards are published and the rules of engagement are in place. Many of the trickier aspects, like support for joint accounts, have been worked out. Australian banks found themselves in the awkward position of being unwitting trailblazers. Some took it in stride, others less so. But all of them, without exception, have come to understand that open banking is going to change their business forever. Australian fintechs, for their part, have been less enthusiastic. Given they can use screen scraping today there is little incentive for them to submit to a more controlled and regulated model. Unless consumers demand it, of course. Will they do so? Are consumers ready to demand their data rights? According to James, they most certainly are. And it turns out it's about more than privacy and control. More and more people both in Australia and around the world, have come to realize that their data is valuable and that the value it generates is being taken away from them by the robber barons of data's Gilded Age. James believes the stage is set for a shift of power from the service provider back to the consumer. Let's dig in and explore further the novel concept of data rights. Why is it so important for people to have rights over their data? That's a very
1: philosophical question. It's important because the data is them. In other policy debates in our society, we don't argue that people have rights over their body, over their reputation when it comes to defamation, over their home or their property. Data is all of those things. Data covers all of those things. It is about all of those things. When you scan your face on your iPhone to unlock it, that's not your face. That's data about your face that is being used. That data is not changeable. I can change a password. I can't change my face. I can't change my retinal scan. I can't change my biometrics. I can't change who I'm related to. I can't change my genome. And yet, all of those things through, say, a graph network of my social network or through DNA sequencing is being turned into data. Why shouldn't I have a right to that? All the consumer data is doing is a right to share. I think that's a first step. And I'm not suggesting, and I would never suggest, where that journey ends. You know, what is the right boundary point? because that's going to have to be worked out. But I think this is a very strong first step about
0: something which is should be very, very non-controversial. Let's shift then to a thorny subject, privacy and monitoring. The tech companies have recently come under major scrutiny for looking at data that they perhaps shouldn't have access to. Likewise, offering a government-regulated standard that says I'm going to pass around consumer data may raise the ire of those who don't trust government. From a technical standpoint, is there really a way to protect my data from being tracked and shared, whether by government or by social networks?
1: The problem in that question is about my data being overshared and being outside of my control. The solution to that problem is not a technical one. The solution to that problem is a societal one. If we accept that this is just a done deal and data can be shared willy-nilly and I can do nothing about it, then no technology will ever be implemented to fix it. If society says this is causing us harm, we need to fix it, then we can come up with technical solutions to do that. Invention follows necessity. And absolutely, there are technical solutions that can be done to do that. And some of those technical solutions are, if you do the wrong thing, I will fine you. That's a technical solution. (laughs) If you do the wrong thing and you mishandle data, you will lose your accreditation or you will end up in a court of law. I could turn that question and rewind it a few hundred years and say, is there really any technical solution to stopping physical violence? And yes, there are but it's a combination of policy, regulation, law, physical locks in
0: prisons, (laughs) these kinds of things. Let me play devil's advocate. Your answer shows a bias, if you'll forgive me, to regulation and government being the answer, but data sharing in the hands of an authoritarian government can be a very dangerous tool. How do I protect from that scenario? Let me clarify. I talked about society,
1: not government. As far as I'm concerned, government is just another stakeholder, like a large bank. Really what we're talking about here is society's willingness to change this. When people say, we're not going to put up with this, we don't like this, we would like it to change, that does impact governments and it does impact the commercial sector and the private sector, and it does create differences. If we had tried to create the CDR 15 years ago, I don't think we would have got anywhere. We didn't get anywhere. There is a desire for people to control their data. From my perspective, it's not about regulation. There will be sectors and stakeholders and even autocratic governments that will seek to control people and prevent people from expressing their wishes and try and take that desire away from them. But history shows that eventually the population wins.
0: Today, our data is out of control. It's out there, on the public internet, often in the hands of one or more tech giants. At this point, most people don't even expect to have visibility into that data, let alone any sort of control or ownership. To take on the Googles and Facebooks, well, that just seems like a losing battle. Ultimately, according to James, the solution to that problem is not a technical one, but a societal one change only happens when society decides that there must be a better way not before it is not enough for governments to enact policies people must believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel once people begin to see the possibility of a better more just world they begin to move towards it and the policy follows from there to be sure the future of open banking hinges on whether people are in fact ready to stand up and demand their data rights, to defend them and the policy changes that must come with them. However, new concepts like data ownership, data control, and data rights are slippery at best, and fundamentally flawed at worst. In an effort to understand these concepts better, I push on James a bit, playing devil's advocate as we continue Our conversation. Some people say that the whole concept of owning your data is flawed at its core. I mean, when you post something on a social network, you're doing that by choice. You're using their social network that they built and own. Why don't they own that data?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say in response to that, is that the consumer data right is not about ownership. It's not a consumer data ownership right. And in fact, the legislation, the regulation is very clear. It's about data sharing rights and control over the data. It's about control about how far data can be used and how it can be shared and how the ownership can be moved. So for instance, my data is already with my bank because I've been getting value out of the bank's platform. I've been using the payments rails. I've been moving money around. I've been getting interest. I've got a home because I have a home loan. This is all value that's created to me. Part of the exchange of that is that like, I'm actually paying for that explicitly in this case. But part of that is that they have to collect data to do that. And part of that data is they've collected through their own value add and effort. But that data is about me. The real question is not who owns that data, but if the bank just decides to give all that data to somebody else, say, and sell it, it's still my data. Do I get no value from that? So this is about the sharing of data to third parties, rather than being completely out of the control of the consumer. If the consumer wants to get value from a different platform, then they have the right to control how that data is shared. And if that data is shared with that other platform, it's just not, I've shared the data now and they have full rights over it, they own it, I've got no say. It's about, no, I'm sharing this for a purpose. And if you stay within that purpose, then we've got an agreement. But if you start to go outside of that purpose, then we don't have an agreement.
0: For a bank, sure, I have an expectation that they are going to protect my data. But for a social network, is it really realistic that I expect them to guard my data and ask for my consent in how they use it? It's a platform, again, that they built and that they own.
1: Yeah, I hear that argument a lot. The same argument applies to monopolies in all generations, The same sort of arguments made about the monopolies for railway and for steel everywhere where there's been a state-owned telecommunications company that's been deregulated. I don't buy that. You know, how much of a platform, a social media platform has been built by the platform and how much has been built by the community of people that have embraced
0: it? Many people don't quite understand in what sense social networks are monopolies. Can you elaborate on that? Social networks aren't monopolies in the sense that people
1: often think of monopolies, as in, I have exclusive access to some scarce resource. Social media networks end up with a monopoly through uh, what's been coined as the network effect. It's actually relatively easy to build a fledgling social network. So the the issue with social networks is that it's not a feature-driven thing, it's not a They don't become large through being better. It's very easy for people to switch. There's actually higher barriers to exit because if I exit, I have a social impact, a social penalty. All my friends are here. If I don't go there, I will not see my friends anymore. The monopoly is, if you like, a result of the social graph, the social network itself. Everyone's there, so that means you have to be there. If you go somewhere else, you might get all exactly the same features, but you're a lone voice in the wilderness. And what's the value in that really?
0: In the 90s, when Microsoft was accused of monopoly, squeezing Netscape out of the market, Bill Gates argued, when you work in IT, there is no such thing as that kind of a moat, that despite network effects, you always have to watch your back. Recent upstarts like TikTok have shown Facebook that they can get to millions of users almost overnight by offering better experiences. Do the social networks really have a monopoly? In the terms of the consumer data rights and data
1: sharing, I don't think that's a relevant argument. That's an argument to say that people can en masse move from one social network to another. So you have to maintain the attraction of your social network, not I have a carte blanche to do whatever I like with the data because I'm adding massive value. My argument would be that under a consumer data rights scenario is that a social network has been built by a combination of the ingenuity of the organisation that created the company. And for certain, Facebook is the prime example of a very, very innovative company. Twitter is a very innovative company. However, they've also been created by the people that have participated. The network effect is an indication that the value of a social network is the participants as much as probably more than the platform. Effectively, Facebook and Twitter are selling the value that their people are adding to the platform, not the other way around.
0: And there's the rub because, as you said, as per network effect, the value of the network is worth more than the sum of its parts. So some of the value is indeed generated by the participants, but some of the value is generated by the network itself. To what extent do you think that the value comes from the latter? And the fact is, if you didn't have Facebook and you didn't have Twitter, you couldn't get to the audiences that you can get to with them. The value doesn't come from you. It comes from the platform.
1: That is true. It's not binary. It's not one way. It's mutual exchange of value. If we translate that same argument to banking, I couldn't have a home without a bank. They add me enormous value. That doesn't mean they're unregulated.
0: A fascinating analogy. Does that mean, coming back to open banking, that you don't really see the banks being completely disintermediated someone will still have to provide that value of the network
1: very much so i'm a big proponent of banks and a lot of the rhetoric has been about tearing down banks in the past because they're dinosaurs and they must be extinct i don't see consumer data right or open banking as being an attempt to disintermediate banks and i don't see it as attempt to remove banks banking will always need to be there what I see it being about is having it in more places and more ubiquitous. And I think the banks that will be successful are the ones that will see it as an opportunity to extend their reach and extend their services and extend their customer experience rather than retreat into some utility type concept.
0: Whether it's a bank platform or a social media platform, People share their data with platforms because those platforms provide them with value in return. In exchange for my data, a bank gives me things like loans and Facebook gives me things like likes. Trying to pin down who owns all that data, you or the platform, is a bit of a dead end. The issue is less about data ownership and more about control. Control over who sees what data, for how long and, crucially, for what purpose. Once this control is in place, it forms the foundation for a more equitable exchange of value. In the absence of that control, such as we have today, the asymmetric sharing of data has led to massive data monopolies, unlike anything we've ever seen. The degree of control which these tech giants have on our lives is overwhelming and scarcely understood. The smart banks out there will see open banking as a way to extend their reach, to reap the rewards of network effects by building an ecosystem around their platform. To that end, they will embrace the controls offered by open banking. But can the same be said of the social networks? Is control or protection over the data they handle even technically possible Is all data created equal? That's the question I put to James next.
1: I'm a technologist. By definition, all data is equal. It's a number associated with another number in most cases. Data is data. We're not on a gold standard anymore. Those numbers that represent balance, They're really a, if you like, a sum of the economic activity of that person and the economic consumption of that person. You could actually see a bank balance as just a form of data. Social media is about me. It's about who I am. It's about my social contribution and my social consumption.
0: Let's assume that this regulation is passed and Facebook is on the hook to protect my data. Can it even be done? How can it reasonably be protected?
1: That's the problem. You don't know where it is because you don't have control. You're not asked, where am I allowed to send this? What am I allowed to do with it? You're not given the option. I don't see that as a reason, I see that as a
0: problem. I meant the question a little differently. Is control even technically possible?
1: Is control of the data possible I think is demonstrated by Facebook and by Twitter themselves because they do control it. It is virtually impossible to screen scrape Facebook. It is very difficult to get data out of Facebook unless you use their stipulated channels, which they charge for. They have demonstrated technically that the data can be controlled because they control it because it's of value. A consumer can't control it because they hand over that control to Facebook.
0: Let's go larger. There are those who would say that the control you describe isn't possible, not even for the social networks themselves, that even if they were compelled and wanted to protect all of your data, they simply couldn't. The internet is such that once you put something in there, it's there. An expectation of privacy is not realistic nor technically possible. To a
1: degree, I agree with that. Bringing it back to the consumer data right and the areas the consumer data right have touched. If I make a transaction with a bank, I'm now identifiable. I have moved money. I've used a credit card. I can't assume that I'm off the grid and I can't claim that I am no longer private. I have posted that and people now have access to that information. That is the same argument in the banking context. And it is true. If you use a credit card, there are many participants in the credit scheme networks that now have access to that information. And there are protections to dissociate that from the identity of the individual. But to all intents and purposes, you've put yourself out there. The fact that I've put myself out there to achieve a particular good uh, is a choice that I make. And I have control over that choice. The consumer data right isn't about preventing people from making that choice and bearing the consequences of that choice. The consumer data right is talking about the control of the aggregate data, the control of the data that is elongated over time, if you like, the metadata. A lot of the value extracted from social media networks is not, has nothing to do with the posts themselves. The posts themselves are public. The value that's extracted is the indications of intention, the things that I like, the things that I associate with myself with, the things that I dissociate myself with, the time that I use the platform. These are all things that are extractable from the engagement, but it's got nothing to do with the post. It's got nothing to do with the thing that I'm putting out there. I can use a social media network and post innocuous things. I could literally post the time of day and I'm not really putting anything out there. I can use an anonymous account. Facebook is seeing significantly more than the public face that I'm presenting. And I have no control over that data or where it goes. Facebook has 100% control over that data and where it goes. Twitter has 100% control over that data and where it goes. This is the difference between me putting myself out there and me having no rights to data once I use a platform in some way. So if we were to take that argument and then reapply it back to traditional industries, uh, say electricity usage, or banking, or when I go to a hospital, would we use the same argument? And demonstratively, if you look at history, societies have not made the same choice and used that argument to indicate whether they should regulate or not. In all of those other more traditional industries, there is regulation. There is regulation over the use of data in health. There is regulation over the use of data in insurance. There is regulation over the use of data in banking, in electricity. Why
0: should social media be different? Let's get a little philosophical on that front. If you regulate the use of data, if you imply that it needs to be protected in all its forms, isn't that somewhat contrary to the whole philosophy of the Internet? After all, the Internet was built on remix culture, the idea that the data is out there to be copied, pasted, reused, and remixed, However, the builders of the internet saw fit. Doesn't regulation and data rights run the risk of slowing innovation?
1: I'm old enough to remember the beginnings of the internet. And I do remember the freedom and the flexibility and the newness and the fact that anything could happen here and that feeling. The internet today is not that internet. Facebook is a closed network. The Apple ecosystem is a closed network. Twitter is a closed network. TikTok is a closed network. These are closed networks that are using TCPIP. They're not necessarily the open, flexible internet you describe. I don't see that the current internet is meeting that philosophical goal, that a free, open feeling of the early days of the internet is not characterized by large tech giants. Large tech giants are innovative in historical terms. It doesn't necessarily mean they're innovative in future terms. The innovator's dilemma is a real thing and it's based in human psychology and the large tech giants are going to be just as susceptible to the innovator's dilemma as anything else. There are already startups trying to compete with them because they are not as innovative as they should be, which is why they buy small companies to bring that innovation back in. I would actually see the creation of a consumer data right as it applies to large industries, regardless of the label of the industry, as a promoter of innovation. For example, if I took a large social media network and said, you have to create an API and you cannot charge for that API, and the customer can use that API to give authenticated, explicit consent to a third party so that their data can be shared that's going to create innovation that's going to create massive innovation i see it as a promoter of innovation not a hindrance
0: it's almost like you're saying the pendulum of the open internet swung all the way in the direction of unregulated data which led to these monopolies and now consumer data rights are a way to help the pendulum sort of swing back.
1: I think that's a very apt way of putting it. The irony is that in terms of doing regulation, I now feel more radical than when I was working in digital transformation.
0: Just like when the internet was taking down the BBSs. Exactly correct. In the end, data is data. If control of one kind of data is possible – say, banking data – then certainly that same control can be applied to another kind of data, like the streams on social media. And the choice between open and closed platforms isn't black and white either. You can have platforms that generate enormous amounts of value, but that are still heavily regulated – just like banks are today and likely will be in the future. Another false choice is between tech companies as innovators and regulators as laggards. This isn't necessarily so. Giant tech companies are often terrible at innovation, precisely because they are giant. Even the greatest of tech companies often get stuck in existing businesses and can't see beyond them, a condition described by the late, great Clayton Christensen in The Innovator's Dilemma. In the same manner, regulators are not always stick-in-the-mud laggards, especially when those regulators are trying to tear down walls to create the level foundation for something new. The fact is that the people chipping away at open banking regulations and the technologies that drive them are doing some of the most radical, most innovative work out there. People like James. Will the rest of the world follow in Australia's footsteps and enshrine data rights into law? Or does it go too far? That's where we picked it up. If controlling how my data is shared is so important, do you believe the rest of the world should implement a similar standard to the CDR?
1: If the CDR works in Australia and is effective, that will happen. If it doesn't work as expected, people will learn from that and do something better. I think the CDR is a really important step towards improving the way we share data, improving the way people have personal control over their data, which is a defence against autocracy of all forms. And I think if it is good, it will spread. I am not necessarily sold on the idea that it has to be governments doing it. I think it would be... Better if it happened organically and it didn't require governments doing it. And effectively, legislation followed to encapsulate the common practice and enforce it rather than trying to establish it. So, whether people should pick up the consumer data right, I would suggest no, pick up something better.
0: What challenges lie ahead? What changes still need to be made to the CDR to make it better, to keep driving adoption? We need to make
1: it simpler simpler for a data holder to become compliant. And when I say data holder, I mean in the open banking context, a bank, you know, the people that are implementing the APIs, we need to make it cheaper and easier for them. We need to make it easier for fintechs to become accredited without lowering the bar, but making it easier for them to become accredited. The question really is how do you scale? What you can do in one sector with four large organisations that have got lots of resources over two years is not sustainable for doing 15 sectors that are not digitally enabled. We need to find ways of getting faster, better, more consistent. The number one thing we need to be focusing on with CDR is just doing what we've been doing, but doing it faster across more sectors, more efficiently, quicker, and simpler.
0: There are those out there who say the CDR goes too far. A standard should not cover that scope of data. What would you say to them?
1: Well, there's two things I'd say to them. First is, thank you. Feedback is welcome. But if no one is saying that, I would be disappointed. Because developing a standard is about finding the middle point. You know, it's pushing ahead and being ambitious, but not going too far. So if no one was saying that, I would be worried. If everybody was saying that, I would be worried. If about 50% are saying you've gone too far and if 50% are saying you're an idiot, you should go further, I think we're about right. If everybody hates me, I'm happy. That said, the second thing I would say is that we're not creating a standard out of thin air here. You know, we have very strict consulting-based regulation and designation that says what we are supposed to build standards for. I do not design standards arbitrarily. We only build standards through things that have been driven by
0: policy. In your brightest view of the future, if all of this was in place, what benefits do you see being passed on to consumers? Can you describe a use case? I don't
1: like to describe a use case. Um, My focus has been on the sharing rails, not how people are going to use them. So I'd rather paint this slightly differently. At the turn of the 20th century, the railways were the focus. And everyone was investing in railways and they were the big dominant and the telegraph. You know, there were these industries that were just picking up and changing the world. Now, railways are safe, boring, ubiquitous. Air travel is safe, boring, ubiquitous. These things have ceased to be the focus of everyone's attention and the cause of major problems to being a utility. There was a time when you built your house, you had to choose your electricity company and only get your appliances from that electricity company because the PowerPoints would not work with other appliances and there was a different voltage through minimal standardization of power points and voltage and safety of wiring and the thickness of plastic. And you can now buy very cheap appliances and use them in any house in Australia and it's no problem whatsoever. I would love to see data work like electricity. I think the CDR is a step on the way for data and the management of data and the transfer of data. It's a progression on the protections and the controls and the constraints around that that make data sharing work for people rather than people work for data sharing. My earnest desire is in 20, 30 years' time, my kids and my grandkids will live in a world where, what do you mean you don't have control over your data? Of course you
0: have control over your data. Everybody has control over your data. This is just the way the world works. James, where can our guests find out more about you, your work at Red Crew, and your efforts to drive the CDR?
1: So, if you want to find out about me and Red Crew,
0: redcrew.com.au is the best place to go.
1: With regards to the CDR, though, if you're interested in the standards, I would uh, recommend you head to the Consumer Data Standards website. Specifically, the website for the Consumer Data Standards is consumerdatastandards.gov.au. And that's got links to pretty much everything.
0: It's been great to have you on the show, James. Thank you for joining us.
1: all. thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
0: Most open banking conversations quickly lead to the question of data ownership. The statement, customers' financial data belongs to them, is an all too common refrain among open banking advocates myself included. But our guest, James, suggests the issue is not about ownership at all. Indeed, trying to pin down who exactly owns a given piece of data is a bit like trying to decide who owns a handshake. It takes two to create data, the platform and the participant. And in a way, they both own the data. So, If your data, or more correctly, data about you, cannot truly be owned, then this must be about something other than ownership. James says the issue is really about how your data is being shared and controlled. Ask yourself some honest questions. Do you know everything that your bank knows about you? Do you know what they do with that data? Who they share it with? Do you have any control over how that data is shared? Now, ask yourself those same questions again, but instead of your bank, think of Facebook or Google. The answers are not encouraging. Open banking and the standards that make it possible aim to fix that problem. By putting in place a mechanism for strong, explicit consent to the sharing of your data, open banking hopes to put some control back in the hands of consumers. Not because they own the data per se, but because the data is about them. So they should be afforded some data rights. Specifically, the right to decide who sees your data, for how long, And for what purpose? Nowhere is this concept more advanced than in Australia, where the Consumer Data Rights Act has pushed them to the vanguard of uncharted territory. Thanks to people like James, the Australians are well on their way to implementing safe, consistent data sharing, not just for banking, but throughout their entire economy, all backed by legal protections. Real data rights. Skeptics would say that reclaiming control of your data is a fallacy. It can't be done. Information wants to be free, they say. To them, James responds that information has never been less free. Our data has been claimed, locked up in the walled gardens of the tech giants. Well beyond our meager attempts at control. According to James... It doesn't have to be that way. If we stand up as a single voice and say that we want control of our data back, then we will get it back. Do not believe those who say it's impossible. Not only is it possible, it's happening. Open banking is just the start. Already in Australia, open telecom, open healthcare, and open electricity are all being built today. Around the corner, we already see the beginning of open social and ultimately open data, or open X. So, while banks may be first, rest assured the Googles and Facebooks will have their turn as we finally rise to demand our data rights. And with that, we bring our first season to a close. We'll be taking a few weeks off, so you'll just have to survive with the existing library. To those who have followed our journey so far, thank you for your support. It means the world. Keep listening, and we'll see you in Season 2 of Mr. Open Banking. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.